At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. For many years, many have asked the question, what if God was one of us? Through the incarnation of Jesus, God answered that question, and Jesus became one of us. Every year for centuries, Christians have celebrated the miracle of Jesus' birth. This Christmas season, we're diving into a new series, Emmanuel, God with us. Learning how the arrival of Jesus Christ changes everything. He came to save us, a broken and crooked world, a fallen people. Join us this Christmas as we explore the miracle of Jesus' incarnation and the impact it still has on us. What a blessing it is to be with you. Um, We live in an age and a time, in particular in this season, where our culture is so full of distractions. There are dinners to plan, there's shopping to get done, there are errands to run, there's lists to check off boxes. But if I could just entreat you for just a few moments to, um, to try to focus your best on this moment. Because I believe that this moment is a moment that God wants to reveal himself, his grace, his love to you in a way that could change your life for the rest of your life. You know, today is a day of celebration. And there's so much that we can celebrate, so much we should be celebrating. Um, Ten baptisms, praise God for that. The laying on of hands and the sending out of new missionaries into the world. How many celebrate that as well? But I think there's a question that we should all consider, and I know I've been thinking about this, maybe you have as well, and that is why. Why would someone who has achieved much in their professional life, their academic life, socially, surrender their lives to the lordship of Jesus Christ? What would evoke a a choice like that? Why would somebody lay down the American dream and say, I'm going to invest my life into reaching men and women with the gospel in, in North Africa? Why? And the more I think about it, the more I believe the answer can be summed up in one word. And it's not a word that we get terribly excited about. So pray for me because I'm going to spend 20 minutes talking about it. And that is the word Humility. Now, before you just disconnect for a moment, let me explain to you why our culture does not like that word. It doesn't seem to agree with our competitive instincts, what we learn in sports, what we learn in the business world. Again, what we believe it takes to achieve the American dream. All of those things speak to something other than humility. It speaks to self-promotion, It seeks to pursuing and grasping for opportunities and power and all of those things. You see, um, humility is is not celebrated because it's it's not a resume virtue, it's a eulogy virtue. Maybe you're not familiar with these terms of uh, resume virtue and eulogy virtue, I was first introduced to it through the writings of the famed New York Times journalist, David Brooks. 
Maybe you've heard of David Brooks. He writes op-ed pieces for, among many publications, the New York Times. And it was in 2015 where arguably his most famous of op-ed pieces was released, where he talked about the differences between resume virtues and eulogy virtues. Resume virtues, he argued, were virtues that really brought attention to us because of our accomplishments. These are the accolades that you achieve uh, in life. These are your successes that came because of your perceived hard work and ingenuity. It's the salary you have. It's the degree you, you got. It's the title or position. These are all resume virtues. And we all want people to celebrate our accomplishments. But these are different, David Brooks argues, than eulogy virtues. Eulogy virtues is what we hope people will say at our funeral about us. She was loving. He was kind. They were humble. You see, humility is a eulogy virtue, and it causes our culture at times to mock and even despise it. But what if I told you? that humility was the greatest strength that God has given to the believer, to the Christ follower. What if I made an even bolder statement that humility is the goal of the Christian life? Humility in Christ is how we define spiritual success. Well, I hope to convince you of that today. And if you are convinced of that, and I am fully persuaded of that because of my survey of the scripture, the natural question then is, is how? How do I become humble? And it's a hard question to, to answer because the moment that I say I'm humble, I'm not. It's the paradox of it all. So how do I become humble? It was the famed um, British preacher, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was asked that question by a couple of young up-and-coming ministers. They asked him, how do we become humble? And he responded and said, I fear that the only sure answer to that question is to stare deeply into the face of Christ. And today I want to invite you to do that with me. Let us stare deeply into the face of Christ as we look at one passage of Scripture. Turn with me, if you will, to Philippians. The book of Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 8. We'll just look at five verses and then I promise you we'll go home. And if you need a Bible, there's one in front of you. The words will be on the screen as well. But what we want to do today is just follow the humble example of Jesus. We want to follow Jesus' humble example. We want to look at our, our, our Lord and Savior as, as not just our Redeemer, but he comes to set an example for how life was to be lived. You see, prior to Jesus, men and women lived their lives based off of many different philosophies, all of them falling short, the Bible says, of the glory of God. And then Jesus comes and he is like us in every way except one, and that is he is without sin. And he lives a life that sets a pattern for what it means to have success, not just on earth, but success in heaven. I don't want to just be blessed on this side of heaven, but how many want to step into eternity in the loving arms of your heavenly father and hear, well done, my good and my faithful servant. How many deeply desire that? as your goal. So how? 
Paul is writing on this whole virtue of humility, and he starts in verse number three by asking the the church at Philippi, these first century Christians, to consider a few things. The first step is, if you're going to be humble, consider your position. Listen to what he says here. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is so utterly counterintuitive. This is not the way that I'm wired. This is not the way that our culture is wired. To consider others as more valuable than ourselves. Think about that for just a moment. I've read this text over and over again throughout my Christian life, and in particular in preparation for this particular message. And I I keep coming back to the same question, and that is, Chris, how are you doing at this? And every time I ask myself that question, I realize how far I have to go. And I want to just offer that question to you. How are you doing at esteeming others as more significant than yourself? This is not how we're wired, and Christmas season proves it. How many can be honest enough? We're just here among friends. Don't worry about it. Nobody else would know but us. But how many can be honest enough to admit that some of the gift buying that you do is just because you love shopping? How many can be honest enough about that? How many can, can, can demonstrate even a greater level of honesty and say that the person you love shopping for the most is you? As a matter of fact, don't, don't buy me nothing. Just give me the money. I can shop for myself. I, I can do it real well for, for me. We, we are wired for, for selfishness. If you don't believe this, just, just um, get two babies in a room with one toy. And you will see that it's more than just cultural conditioning. There is something within our DNA. It's what the Bible calls our, our sinful nature. And Paul, writing to the church at Philippi, says, the first thing I need you to do is to consider yourself in relation to others. Not just thinking about your own self-interest, but if you're really going to succeed spiritually, if you're really going to honor God, then I'm encouraging you to do something that is utterly counterintuitive. This is part of the new life in Christ. Old things passed away. All things have become new. I want you for now on to do what you didn't do before, and that is to consider others and their interests is more valuable than yours. Now, Paul wouldn't write this to them unless he had to. There was something that was going on in this community that was threatening to rip the church apart. And it's the same thing that is um, going on in, in every Christian community, in every human heart. It is this selfish ambition, this, this uh, preferring my own preferences above that of the kingdom. You know, I find it hard to um, lay down my right to win an argument, especially when I know I'm right. Can I get an amen? I find it hard to deny myself something when I have the means, the resources to acquire. It's one thing to say no to yourself when you can't do it, when you can't afford it. It's another thing to say no to yourself, to put a governor on your life 
when you can to lay down the American dream to pursue the greater glories of heaven, to, to lay down your life and to center your life on him. How do I do that? Well, Paul is writing to this particular church because of what he has to say in, in chapter four, verse number two. And, and I just want to read to you verses two and three of chapter four. There were two very influential women in this early church and, and they were in dispute with one another and neither one of them were willing to concede the argument. And this is one of the ways we measure our humility is at what point do we say, it's not about me being right, it's about God being glorified. At what point do we say, it's not about me getting what I want, it's about God getting what he wants, it's about his mission, his vision, and his purpose for my life. Listen to what Paul writes to this church. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companions, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Paul said there are two awesome women who are bearing gospel fruit and they're really important to the kingdom, but they have lost sight of the mission of the gospel to know Christ and to make him known because they're in this dispute. And if we don't fix this, the whole church could fall apart because of selfish ambition. And if we don't deal with the selfish ambition in our own lives, it will rip apart our lives. It will rip apart every family. It will rip apart every culture, every country, every church. There is no group that can sustain and survive with selfish ambition at the core. But yet this is the ethos of the moment that we live in. I think about one of the great writers of uh, economics and philosophy, how many have ever heard of the name Ayn Rand before? How many have ever heard that name before? Ayn Rand was a highly intelligent woman who was um, a writer on ethics, philosophy, economics, um, but she was not a Christian. She was an atheist and uh, socially, politically, economically, she was a libertarian and she despised altruism. She despised humility. Listen to her words. She said in one of her books, discard this vice that you so often call a virtue, humility. Learn to fight for your own happiness. You see, for her, that was the highest virtue is happiness. I wonder how many of us has um, prioritized happiness over holiness prioritize our own happiness over obedience to Christ in the name of happiness, breaking covenants, in the name of happiness, pursuing our own lusts and desires, in the name of I just want to be happy. After all, doesn't God just want us to be happy? That seems to be the message of our culture, but the answer that comes back over and again is that he has prioritized our holiness over our happiness. I won't get a lot of amens for that, so I'll say amen to my own sermon. <laughs> but the fact of the matter is, is that he has called us to center his vision and mission as the centerpiece of our lives, not some box that we check in the many categories of obligations that we have. This is a challenge for me, and 
and maybe for you as well. It was Zig Ziglar, who, um, who's a popular guy in the 80s. Some of you may know that name. He has a pretty cool name, Zig Ziglar. I don't know if his mama called him that, but that's what his name was. And um, he wrote a lot of books, did a lot of speeches. And Zig said this, he, he figured out something about life. He says, the key to getting everything you want out of life is to help others get everything they want out of life. Think about that. What Zig had figured out is that every single one of us has as our greatest need a relationship with Jesus Christ. And if you dedicate your life to helping others to get that greatest need met and every subsequent need after that, then you will find in the midst of it, God meeting your greatest need and every other need that you have. Zig figured that out. And it's a hard way for us to live apart from the grace of Christ. He called this way of living, by the way, giving people a heavenly assist. And it caused me to think about sports for just a moment because assists are something that aren't really celebrated. How many remember one of the most famous sports teams in all of history, the 1992 U.S. men's basketball Olympic team known as the Dream Team? Anybody remember them? All right, they had guys on there. I don't know why you're clapping, but yeah. That's, that's great. They had guys on there like Michael Jordan, Magic Johnson, Larry Bird. I mean, these guys who are Hall of Famers, the greats of the greats, but maybe the greatest unsung hero, unassuming superstar of that team was a man named John Stockton. John Stockton was so unassuming that some of you don't even know who I'm talking about. You can't even picture his face in your mind. It's interesting when you watch a documentary on that team, when they go into downtown Barcelona, Spain, where they were at in 1992, they could scarcely walk through town without a massive crowd walking behind them. But John Stockton could easily walk around downtown with his family, taking photos, and nobody even knew he was a basketball player. He was a short, tough guy, but he was quiet and unassuming. But this John Stockton went on to lead the NBA. He's an all-time leader in assists, 15,000-plus assists. To be, to be accurate, 15,806 assists in total. The second highest is 3,000 assists behind him. If you don't know what an assist is, it's when you have the ball in your hand and you pass it to someone else so that they can score. I won't preach to this side of the room because that side doesn't get it. This man, almost 16,000 times, had the ball in his hand, could have scored, but passed it to somebody else so that they can score. I don't think out of all of the great records in sports that will ever be reached again. Why? It's because we don't have point guards anymore. Everybody wants to score because everybody wants to build their brand. I got a young athlete at home, my son, he loves sports, he's playing sports, and um, there are times when I, when I catch him practicing his celebration more than his fundamentals. <laughs> yeah, this is what I'm going to do the next time I hit a three-pointer. I'm like, just learn how to dribble. That's, that's, that's all we need to do right now. Just, just dribble, right? Now, he's great, and I love his heart. And, but yet, this is the ethos, right? The ethos of the moment that we're living in. But John Stockton would tell you that his greatest joy was helping others to score. 
What if, what if Woodside, what if you and I became known as a church committed to assisting others? to assisting others to find Jesus, assisting the gospel getting spread throughout the globe and our support of our global partners? What if we locked in that way and said, we want to be known as a church committed to leading and assist. We want to assist the spread of the gospel locally, nationally, and around the world. How many can buy into that vision to glorify Jesus Christ. This is what Paul calls us to. But yet he doesn't stop there. He goes on in verse number five and he says these famous words. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Consider your position in relation to others. And now he says, consider your mindset. And friends, I am so glad that this verse five is thrown into Paul's essay on humility. Because honestly, I'm crushed every time somebody tells me to be a good person as if I can muster up that virtue on my own. One of the worst things that we can do, and we do it so often in corporate America, in schools, we teach virtues to people and we tell them be, be a person of character, be kind, be nice, uh, be sacrificial, as if those things come naturally to us. And they don't. They don't. Even with people that I love deeply, my wife, my children, I still find my selfishness so often interfering. So how do I do this? How do I get off of this hamster wheel of being told by, by people over and again that I need to be a good person and I keep saying to them, I'm trying to be a good person, but I can't do it. Herein is the gospel. The gospel is not that we can be good people apart from Christ, but the gospel is we need Jesus to be good people. And so what Paul says here is he says, uh, he says, have this mind among yourselves. I want you to think like Jesus, think in humble ways which is yours in Christ Jesus. In other words, among the many blessings that Jesus gives us at salvation, the promise of heaven and resurrection and new life in him, among those, he gives me the ability to not think in a self-centered way, to no longer be driven by selfish ambition, but he gives me his mind and now I can look at the truths of scripture and think like Christ. And so can you, you and I. We can think like him. And how did he think? He was driven by the needs of others. That's what drove him. And that's what needs to drive us is the needs of others. Can I, can I tell you something that you need to know? is that Christmas is a celebration because of the first Christmas. Because the Son of God came into the world. That's what this whole series is about. It's about the incarnation. It is about God taking on human flesh and stepping into the world. But here's the announcements, friends. If, you, if you've never heard this before, the first Christmas didn't happen because heaven needed it. 
The first Christmas happened because we needed it. Jesus comes into the world. He inaugurates Christmas for me, for you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. They'll die without a savior. They'll be crushed in their sins without a savior. They'll give themselves to the false gods of success and accomplishments and being driven by all of these things that are fool's gold and they'll get to the top of the ladder and realize how empty and lonely it is. For what? They need redemption. They need a savior. Jesus comes to redeem you and I. I need Christmas. You need Christmas. That's why Jesus came. And then he says, now have this mind in you that was also in Christ Jesus that is yours in Christ. He has given it to us so that we can live for the greatest needs of the world. What is the greatest needs of my son and my daughter? What is the greatest needs of my wife, greatest needs of my neighbor, greatest needs of the world? It is to know Christ, whom to know is eternal life. In his presence is the fullness of joy. He is the Prince of Peace. All the stuff that we're looking for, joy and peace and life, it is found in him. When the women come to the tomb after his resurrection, the question of the angel is the question of the ages, and that is, why do you search for the living among the dead? Why look for life in dead things as if you can find life in a degree or a nightclub? Or a relationship. No, you need a savior. And he's come because I've needed him and because you need him. And then he commissions us to go and tell the world of what you have found and how many thank God that you have found a savior. And then I end with these last three words, this hymn, if you will, who through verse number six, who who though rather he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I refer to this as a hymn because many theologians, when they look at this, many New New Testament scholars will say, this is a hymn because of its rhythmic uh, form in in the Greek original language that it was written in and because of its poetic design. And, And if this is a hymn, it's the hymn of humility. And the hymn of humility, it builds by descent. And what I mean by that is that each stanza of this hymn describes the humility that Jesus demonstrated as it builds to its ultimate crescendo. Think about it for just a moment, the first stanza. The first stanza goes a little bit like this, that God humbled himself. 
Think about that. It's one thing for us to say to one another as human beings that we need to be humbled. But the God of heaven, the creator of heaven, earth, the universe, he humbled himself. And how did he humble himself? He humbled himself by taking on the form of a man. That word form in the Greek is morphe. It means to bear the characteristics. So he had all the characteristics of God. He is God of fully God. This is the deep water of the dual nature of Jesus Christ. He has omniscience, omnipotence, omnipresence, but yet he took on the full characteristics of humanity. All of our brokenness yet without sin. But if that was not enough for us to wrap our minds around, it goes a step further. And the second stanza says, he not only humbled himself as a man, but he humbled himself as a servant. It's one thing to lay down the glories of heaven and to come to earth and, 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 and to be popular and famous. He could have been born in a palace. He could have been lavished with all types of popularity and accolades, and it still would have been humility because how many know that there's nothing on earth that compares to the glory of heaven? How many believe that with me, right? But he not only came to earth, but he humbled himself and became a servant. And if that is not mind-blowing enough, the third stanza says that he not only became a servant, but he goes even lower he became obedient even to the point of death. He lays down his life for you and for me. And if that is not enough, the fourth stanza of this hymn of humility tells me that he didn't just die any death. He died the death of the cross which was the most humiliating public death that a person could die. And he did it all for love's sake, all for your sake. But none of this should be a surprise to us. None of this should be a surprise to us. This is exactly how we should expect God to behave if he's really God as my friend Abdi Murray has often said, that if God is the greatest conceivable being that we can think of, which he is, we should expect that he would demonstrate the greatest ethic we can think of, which is love. But we should expect him to demonstrate the greatest ethic in the greatest way, which is self-sacrifice. And that's what the hymn of humility is all about. It is about the greatest being God, demonstrating the greatest ethic love in the greatest way, the cross also that he could redeem you and me. And he does that and then tells us, now go and do the same. Friends, in the day that you hear his voice, harden not your heart. Today he offers to you what no one else can offer to you. It is salvation and grace and forgiveness. This is what our souls have been longing for. And then he calls us to go and tell the world until all have heard, until Christ returns. Can we all stand today? Praise God. I pray that today, if you're in need of a savior, that you wouldn't get this close to his grace and leave. 
But after service, there'll be some that'll be up here to pray with you. I'd love to pray with you. If God has been drawing you to himself, let today be the day of your salvation. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that today we would not seek our own, but we would live for your glory. And again, that we will proclaim your goodness until all of her, until Christ returns. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen and amen. Go and tell the world of his love. God bless. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org slash connect to introduce yourself today.